Inasmuch as many have taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, as we, as we open your word and we begin a new series, we, we want to center our attention and our minds, our hearts, our feelings, our desires on, on who Jesus was, as he really is, as he really was, that we would push away the things maybe that, that we've brought to him that aren't true, that aren't really who he is, and that we could just let this, this first century disciple of Jesus who, who knew the people who knew Jesus uh, to give us the vision and picture of Jesus that's, that's true to who he really was. We ask this by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1820, former President Thomas Jefferson got out a pair of scissors, a Bible, and proceeded to cut out all of the parts of the life of Jesus he found objectionable. He cut out all of the miracles. He cut out many of the teachings he did not like. And some of the events of Jesus' life he found objectionable. All were gone. And when he was finished cutting up the Gospels, he released uh, his work to the public under the title, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the introduction, this is how he explained what he was doing. There will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is, is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines. That's a pretty bold move. To call parts of the Bible a dunghill and to take what many people consider to be a holy book and literally take scissors to it. Cutting out the parts of Jesus you don't like and retaining the parts that you do. And probably most of us think, I'd never do anything like that. I'd never cut up my Bible. I'd never take, only think of Jesus in the ways that I like him and remove the ways that I don't. But, but really? The number of times I'm in a conversation where someone will say something like, my God would never, sounds more like someone who is constructing a God than yielding to one. <clears throat> like Jefferson. I'm, just, I'm cutting that part of Jesus out. That's why Tim Keller said the mark of whether or not you really believe in God, or really have a relationship with a true God, is whether or not that God can disagree with you. Or why Anne Lamont once quipped, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> we do this. We underline, we highlight the verses we love, but rarely, if ever, highlight the verses that are our confrontation, that disagree with us, that challenge us or that run counter to our cultural assumptions and ways of being. And as we embark into a new series uh, on the life of Jesus, we're calling Rediscovering Jesus, I just wonder, have I done that? Am I doing that? 
have I pulled a Jefferson Bible where I've cut away at the real Jesus to get a Jesus I, can, I like? Or is Jesus, the real Jesus, the true Jesus, cutting away at me? Because it can't happen both ways. Either I'm shaking him down to my size or he is glorifying me to his. And so this morning we're starting a series, The Gospel of Luke, where we're going to be for the next 14 weeks. And what we want to do is, as best we can, put aside our assumptions, put aside our agendas, and get back to the most controversial, most consequential human being who ever lived. What did he say? Who was he? What did he care about? What did, from his own words, he claim his mission was about? What was he doing in the world? And I think this matters whether you believe in Jesus or not, because if you're going to reject Christianity or the way of Jesus, like you want to reject the real thing, not a fake, uh, counterfeit, stripped-down Jesus. You want to reject the real thing. And more importantly, if you are a follower of Jesus, you want to follow the real Jesus. You don't want to, you don't want to do what Jefferson did. You don't want to do what Ke- Keller warns you about. You don't, want to, you don't want to have a God who cannot disagree with you, who cannot confront you, who cannot call you to change. And Luke's gospel actually, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, starts here. It starts with getting to the real Jesus. And I want to approach the, the sort of the first four verses of the gospel of Luke this morning by... By three ways, three ways. First, that there are three ways you know you are seeking the real Jesus and not accepting a counterfeit. Three ways you know you're cutting, Jesus is cutting away at you and you're not cutting away at him is, is you do three things. First, you listen to those who knew Jesus. You look for the story, not the advice. And you make it personal. So first, listen to those who knew Jesus. Jesus begins his, or Luke begins this gospel by saying everything that you're about to read is very in, intentional and that Luke, like others, so Luke is clearly showing awareness that other people had already written about the life of Jesus at this point. Uh, but Luke, uh, Luke wants you to know where he got his stories from, where this, this story is coming from, where this narrative is coming from. And he makes it clear in the first two verses. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And I'll cut off half sentence because what Luke is saying there is that from the beginning there have been eyewitnesses who have been talking about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Luke has gone to those eyewitnesses and he is now telling us through this gospel what they said and what they claimed about their encounters with Jesus. And this is important because this is very different than how the New Testament is often talked about in our broader culture. And one, probably the most famous example of this, someone who sold a lot of books at the popular level, is uh, a theologian named uh, Bart Ehrman. And his basic argument uh, goes like this, that the, the Gospels, like Luke, the New Testament documents, they're a part of oral traditions. And so uh, the first follower of Jesus, they had stories, and they passed those stories on to the next people, and they passed them on to the next people and to the next people. And like uh, any of you who play the childhood game Telephone, the first person who speaks uh, the first sentence, by the time you get to the end of the, the line, it's very different than what was said at first. And that's because you had all of these oral traditions, all of these stories being uh, told and repeated and ultimately messed up as they got passed on and on and on. And then eventually, according to people like Ehrman, 
someone like Luke, because he wanted to win an argument with other, other Christians about who the true Jesus was, he wrote his gospel down, even though it's really hard to take what Luke said and get back to the real Jesus because of this game of telephone. And so most, most sort of broader cultural consensus is that the gospels were written very late and are not connected in meaningful ways to the real Jesus because of this game of telephone, because of the ways things had been passed down. Now, uh, Richard Bauckham, who's another theologian you probably are not familiar with, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's 600 pages long. It's very dense, but it's uh, very widely read scholarly. It's a, a, schol- it's a scholarly opinion, not, um, not someone's uh, opinion. And he devastates his view of Ehrman's in three ways. And so I'm going to give you 600 pages of scholarship in like five minutes. First, Ehrman says the Gospels are written too early to be made up. And actually, even uh, someone like Ehrman would acknowledge that the Gospel of Luke was probably written between 25 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. Um, and so that means we have, in, in, within the lifetime of people who lived during Jesus' own life, the Gospels written down. You can't just make up something from 30 years ago and write it down. It's not, there's too many people living who can say that's not true. Right, so, for example, uh, we all know that the last time the Chiefs won the Super Bowl was 30 years ago in, in 1990. And we all remember that team. Right? That was amazing. I think uh, Elvis Gerbach was the, the quarterback, I think. No, because it didn't happen 30 years ago. And there's a bunch of people in this room who's like, I was there. And I actually looked it up this morning. So they lost in the playoffs. They were 11 and 5. Uh, some guy, I don't even remember the quarterback's name. Christian Okoye was on. It's like everyone, there's enough history in here. I can't make that up. And Luke could not go around saying, this guy, Jesus raised people from the dead, and his body went missing. And, uh, and this, he could not do that without people saying, none of that's true. It's written too early. And so my encouragement to you, whether Jesus, what happened or what didn't happen is true or not, um, listen to the people who, who were there and what they claimed about him. Before you listen to scholars or uh, writings that are, are centuries after the life of Jesus, Luke was written within, uh, within living memory history of Jesus' life. And that'll be important later in the gospel. But that's first. Second is the early church, the early church revered eye, the eyewitnesses. And so Bauckham points out, there's this, this phrase in uh, verse number two uh, that Luke says, uh, from the beginning, there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And what Bauckham points out is this was actually, this was an office in the early church. There were people who were given special priority, who were, who were teachers, some were pastors, who because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, they were given special priority um, to, uh, um, to, to, to teaching, to authority within the life of the church. And the, the one place this becomes clear uh, is there was an early Christian named Papias who wrote around 100 A.D., and he wrote a, a, an account of the life of Jesus. And when he did that, uh, what he said was, listen, there are gospels, there are writings about the life of Jesus. And those are important, those have informed my work. But what's more important is he, is he names two guys, uh, one named Aristion, the other John the Elder. He says, I, I have heard from those two men in particular because they were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. So even 80, 90, 100 AD, there were still living witnesses to the, the life and teachings of Jesus. And Papia says, I preferred their voice over even the writings because they were there. So the early church, um, it, it wasn't just a bunch of people giving story. I heard Jesus might have said this, and this might have happened. No, no, no. It was, it was not a game of telephone. It was you had the, the person who spoke first was still around until very late 
And, and even into the 100 AD or so, there were Christians 67 years after the life of Jesus who were still saying what matters most is eyewitness testimony. And so that's what Luke said. Luke says, everything I'm writing to you is built on eyewitness testimony. And then third and finally, what, what Bauchum, the most interesting part of Bauckham's book to me is that there are unexplainable details all over the Gospels um, that ultimately only make sense in light of eyewitness testimony. And, and the be- to me, my favorite example of this will be what our Easter text is going to be on April 12th, which is um, Luke tells the story of a man named Jairus whose child dies and, and the child is raised back to life. What's interesting, uh, according to Bauckham, is uh, everyone sort of acknowledges the Gospel of Mark was written first. And it's clear here Luke acknowledges there were other Gospels written before his own. So he's aware that, that Mark wrote this Gospel. There's a Gospel there. Mark wrote it. But when Mark tells the story of Jairus, he doesn't name Jairus. He just tells a story. And so Bauckham is asked, asked the question, why does Luke name Jairus and Mark does not? And some people give the answer, well, that's because, you know, the story got passed down and details got added and Luke just made it up. But that actually doesn't make sense of what we know is when Luke repeats the stories from the Gospel of Mark, um, oftentimes there are less details, which is what you'd expect if you're repeating the story. When you go through all of the things Luke takes from Mark, he puts in less details because he assumes you've already read Mark. Um, or he doesn't, uh, he doesn't care about those details because they're already somewhere else. But there are a number of places in Luke's gospel where he adds details. And Bauckham said, and he, listen, this is a long chapter, and I'm, I did the work for you, okay? But Bauckham says the only thing that makes sense of Luke's decision is that Jairus was a leader in the early church who told his testimony again and again and again. And either Luke spoke to Jairus directly and, and heard the story from Jairus, or it was such a well-known tradition within the early church that Luke is pointing to Jairus as his authority. In other, like, in other words, the story of a child being raised from the dead, there's a name attached to that story. And Luke says, that's my source, go ask him. And so there, you can't explain that detail, Bauckham says, in, in any way except the fact that Jairus was the source of that story for Luke. So uh, this is all really interesting history, right? Why does it matter? And here's the only, the only point I'm trying to make, is whatever you think of Jesus, get your view from the people who knew him. Not from some person who wrote a blog because they did some soul searching and here's the Jesus they discovered themselves. I, who cares? I want to know, what did Jairus encounter? What did Luke encounter? I don't want some rediscovered Jesus of someone who has theologically revisioned the entire gospel story into their own image. I want who Jesus actually was. And we live in a day of the Jefferson Bible where the recreation of Jesus into our own image, Jesus is my homeboy, right? Jesus is my life coach. He's a whole lot of different things. And Luke's saying, no. Let me tell you the story. So listen to those who knew Jesus. Let encounter Jesus on his term, not yours. That's, that's first. And then secondly, uh, look to the story, not the advice. And what, what, I, what I mean by this is Luke uses two words to describe what he's doing here in the introduction. First, he says, many have uh, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. A narrative. And then he, he says later that he wants to write an orderly account in verse 3. And, and what this means is, is Luke wants you to see that, that the life of Jesus is not just a bunch of random teachings that are interesting. Which is what, what Jefferson did, did to Jesus. And what many of us do to Jesus. So here's all his interesting teachings. Now, what, what Luke is saying is this is not a, a bunch of morals to follow. This is a story. 
This is a narrative. This is a way of seeing the world he's inviting you into. Look there first. And here's what I mean. The most religious writings, when there's a miracle or when there's something interesting, it's always attached to a moral. Or sorry, you know, this miracle happened, therefore do this thing. But this doesn't work with the gospel stories. That's the thing. We just went through the, the Christmas story, right? The, the story of Jesus and the appearance of the angels and babies being born. All that was the last four or five weeks of our time together. Just think, like, what is the moral of the Christmas story? Believe an angel if you encounter one? Right? Go be a shepherd? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like, the stories don't make sense, except for the fact that Luke's, what he's doing in that entire story is to say Jesus is the son of David. He's the prophesied king. He's the Messiah. He's come to save the world. It's a story. It's not a, it's, look to the story before the advice. This is actually really, this is really good news. Because what it means is that salvation is, is by grace, through faith, not by obedience to teachings. And this is, this is a completely different way to enter Christianity than any other religion. And it's, and it's why, uh, this has happened a lot in, in my life, where I'll sit down with someone and they'll basically ask me, if I become a Christian, do I have to do this teaching? Do I have to obey this teaching of Jesus? If I follow Jesus, and, and to me that's a sign that you, you actually haven't encountered the real Jesus yet, because you're, you're obsessed with the teaching instead of the story, and you're like, well, here, what are all the things I have to do? It's like, no, 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 like, okay, there's some things there, we got to talk about those, but like, that's not the point. The point is Jesus, Son of David, Messiah, you need to look to that first before you ever start asking, you know, does Jesus get to define how much money I give away? Does Jesus get to define my sexuality, my morality? None of those questions matter until you first ask to see the Son of God, the Messiah, the reigning king. Then all of those questions fall into line. And so before you ever ask, or before you ever look to the advice, you need to see the story first. And when you encounter the story, Jesus as he is, when you're struck by the power, the beauty, the truth of who he was and is, you will have an entirely re- different reaction to Jesus than, do I have to obey this? And one of the best places this is captured is at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, um, one of his stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Aslan, who's sort of the, he's the Christ-like figure in the story, so he is the representative of Jesus in the story. At the end of The Horse and uh, His Boy, the climactic event is where two of the main characters, two horses, Bree and Huen, encounter Aslan, who's Christ, he's a lion, and when Huynh encounters Aslan, she's terrified, and yet at the same time struck by his beauty. And she says to him, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you'd like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than be fed by anyone else. As we walk through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, you will find Jesus has both this compelling beauty and this terrifying reality. The story of Jesus is the Son of God stripped naked and nailed to a cross to save you from all the burdens, sorrows, and sins. And the response to that is not cost-benefit analysis. It's not, well, if I get, I get this from him, so I'll, I'll give that much obedience. No, no, that's not how it works. You're encountering a lion. Right? It's, it's either eat me, you're so beautiful, like just, I'm yours, whatever it is, or you're not. There's, there's no cost-benefit analysis to a relationship with Jesus. And yet that's what's beautiful is this is, it's grace, right? It's, it's not you have to obey so much, you have to be so good. It's grace through 
faith. And to encounter the real Jesus is to encounter a story and to to, want to be a part of it and to find that Luke's entire gospel is an invitation. Jesus saying to you and me, you can come in. You can be a part of this story. This story is yours. Join it. God is at work. Come and, and, and be a part of what I'm doing in the world. And that's why the Bible's fundamental invitation to us is not obedience to the teachings of Jesus, even though we will talk about that. And obedience to the teachings is really important. But that's not the primary message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The primary message is this is God come to save you. This is the work of God is broken into the world, and you can join it through his grace and kindness towards you. So look at the story before the advice. Don't. Don't pile up the teachings of Jesus and ask, do I have the strength to do all these? No. Do you want to be a part of the story? Thirdly, then, and finally, um, Luke wants you to make it personal. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so compelled by the Gospel of Luke is the way that it begins, which is that it's, it's written to a person, a man named Theophilus. But honestly, like, you could substitute your own name here. We could substitute our own name in this spot. Right, Luke says, it, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, Tim, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This may be a little Jefferson Bible-ish, but I mean, write your name in that, that spot. I mean, it's, yes, it's for Theophilus, but it's for you. Luke wants you to have certainty that Jesus is who he said he was. And we're not sure exactly who Theophilus was. He could have been a benefactor who gave Luke money to help him do his research and write this story, this gospel. He could have been a Christian who believed in Jesus and wanted like, more teaching and more things to read um, about the life of Christ. Or, or what I think is the most likely is that Theophilus is either a Christian or not quite yet a Christian. And he's not sure he can believe it. Either he's a Christian and doubt has set in, and he's like, I don't, really, I don't know. Or he's outside the faith, and he's, he's like, Luke, I'm not sure. And so I, I, I actually don't find doubts, questions like that problematic in any way, if that's where you're at this morning. And you, and you think back, this is 2,000 years ago, did this really happen, can I really trust this? Sure, it's eyewitness, like I just, how can I know? That's okay if you're there. In fact, I would say, if, if you've never had those questions, I'm not sure you've wrestled yet with the gravity of what Jesus claimed to be. For example, I, I've talked many times about my fear of flying, um, and everyone acts like I'm the problem with that, like, because I'm irrationally afraid of flying, that that's a, but guys, like, this is, okay, this is what we do when we fly, all right? Every time we fly, we load up a couple hundred people into a small metal tube, that travels 500 miles an hour and weighs over 150,000 pounds. And we put all of that at about, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. And it's like, everyone's like, oh, it's safe. It's like, what? Like, did you listen to anything of what just was spoken about, what we're doing together? And here's the thing. I, I am the one approaching that, that experience rationally. I recognize my life is at risk, that I understand correctly the nature of what we do together when we fly, which is we are crazy people. And listen, to have questions about Jesus is actually to show that you get faith. That you're not, you're not cutting Jesus down to your side, a life coach, right? That, you'll never have doubts about that, Jesus. But faith in Jesus is, is riskier than stepping on a plane. 
because you're putting, or you're support, if you are actually giving faith to Jesus, you're putting everything in your life, all of your desires, all of your hope, all of your resources, your money, all of your family, your marriage, your kids, your friendships, your work, all of it you're saying here. I hope we don't crash. And so it's perfectly normal in that to ask, will he hold up? Is he who he said he is? And I would say, I'm, I say this confidently, if you've never had those questions, it's a sign you have pulled a Jefferson Bible and you need to get out of there. You've cut Jesus down the side. You have not joined Jesus' story. You've invented a Jesus to join yours. And so there's no tension. There's no question. There's no doubts. You're in charge. Theophilus has questions. I have questions. You have questions. And there are days I wonder, can he hold all that I have given him? And so I just want to take a couple of minutes this morning. I want to honor the questions, the questions I have, the questions I'm sure Theophilus had, the questions we wrestle with as we think about, does Jesus get all of it or, or not? That there are lots of reasons why it's hard to take this life of Jesus that was 2,000 years ago and make it personal. And I want to mention just three really quick. First being that we have so many options. There are so many religions to choose from today. You Google the religions on the internet, you've you got a million choices. And there's so many good people in those religions that our, our world is like a, a cheesecake factory menu. There's like two billion options. And it's like, I don't even know where to start. So why should I take Jesus seriously when there's two billion options? Right? I don't go to Cheesecake Factory because I don't want to look at the menu. It's too much. And yet all of it, that's our reality, is there are two billion different ways of viewing the world. Or we, it's not just that we have endless choice in religion anymore. We have endless choice of distraction. That for most of us in this room, I would say our our likeliness to begin to doubt in Jesus is not rooted into the number of religions that might en enhance us. It's more likely to be the device in our pocket or in our hand. You have endless choice of distraction to be entertained. You can get deep in a conversation thinking about eternity and meditating on the person of Jesus. And the next thing you know, you're watching cat videos on YouTube. And you don't even like cats. We, we binge Netflix for hours. We entertain ourselves. Distraction may be your bigger threat to faith than any other religion. But the point is we have endless options to spend our days and life. And my hope is that you'll make this coming year, 2020, about discovering Jesus or rediscovering Jesus. And if you don't know, why should I do that? If there's so many options, why Jesus? And here's why. I think this, is, this has always held true for me is I, in my own questions is there are two things true of Jesus that are not true of any other religion, any other way of being, that are unique to Jesus. The first, listen, lots of religious leaders, teachers, religions have beautiful teachings. Jesus is not unique here. There are great teachings in many different religions, many different ways of seeing the world. Lots of religious leaders have beautiful teachings. Secondly, lots of religious leaders uh, made outrageous claims about themselves and accepted Worship or borderline worship? Netflix has like three documentaries on them right now. Even though I just trashed Netflix, there's the, you should go watch them. Because typically, when people start acting like God, they abuse others, they lie, they get rich. Jesus is the only person who combines both beautiful moral teachings and a beautiful, powerful life. 
that was not used to oppress the poor, to take from others, but, but literally was spent giving all of himself. And you're going to see that. He's, Jesus is the only religious teacher who both accepted worship and had a beautiful life and had beautiful teachings. He's the only one. He's unique. Most religious teachers would say, don't worship me. Right? Get, stand up. I'm equal. I'm equal to I have teachings, but don't worship me. Jesus accepted people worshiping him. You are either deranged if you do that or deserving. He's the only one. He's, he's unique. So I hope you'll spend 2020 discovering or rediscovering him. That's first. There's so many options. That makes, it, that makes faith hard. Second is we, we sense there is more, and yet we feel cut off from it. I think what makes... Uh, the most common objection I hear to Christianity today from people is, if, if God is so real, why do I not experience him? If God's so real, why doesn't he make himself real to me in, in a powerful way? Right? If there is more, we feel cut off from it. In the last five uh, or so years, the most powerful piece of culture I've experienced is a 2016 performance of Kanye West on SNL with his song, Ultralight Beam. I think SNL, I think, actually doesn't want people to watch this. Like, it's hard to find. You have to, like, Google it and get to a European website to, to watch this. But you should watch it. Um, this is, I don't know if this is before his conversion to Christianity, where he was at, but the entire song is the struggle of his life, his struggle to believe in God. And yet what seems like the inevitab- inevitability of God is there in the midst of the doubts. Here are some of the lyrics. I'm trying to keep my faith, but I'm looking for more. Somewhere I can feel safe and in my holy war. So why sin, oppression, not blessing? Why, oh, why did you do me wrong? You persecute the weak because it makes you feel so strong. Don't have much strength to fight, so I look to the light to make these wrongs turn right. Head up high, I look to the light. So at SNL, the performance actually ends with Kirk Franklin, who's a gospel singer, Christian, praying over Kanye West, who's like laid out on the ground, for him that God will keep him safe. That we all have this longing, this desire to be safe. That there is a God who will make things right, who's watching over us, who will not leave us to our own devices, to our own sufferings, to our own deaths. And we have this longing and this desire not just for everything to be right. We have this desire because there is someone who can provide it to us. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote this in, Christianity, in Mere Christianity. It says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. And what Luke says throughout the gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, is that Jesus is not a guide who can get us to our true home if we obey his teachings. He is our true home who has come to us. And while we do not experience our true home in this life, in this moment, um, Jesus can get us there and he is our home. And so I hope you'll make 2020 about rediscovering just who he is and why he claimed to be that for you. And then thirdly and finally, that what makes faith difficult um, is we make up our own versions of Jesus. Every one of us. This isn't a Jefferson problem. This is a Tim problem. Every one of us 
takes Jesus, shrinks him down into our politics, into our way of seeing the world, into just someone who agrees with us. And all of us are forced to reckon with the question, will I take the cue of Thomas Jefferson and cut apart this book and this story until it's, it's, I'm comfortable with it, or will I let the person of this book cut away at me? There's no middle ground there. Either Jesus is cutting away at me or I'm cutting away at him. And listen, the real problem with a domesticated Jesus is, is, is not just that like you're, you're doing something to someone that's not fair. It's that ultimately a domesticated Jesus will not hold up in this world. It will not help you when you are suffering. In a world of mortality, in a world of pain, in a world of trial and trouble, that Jesus will not help you because he's not real. And when I domesticate Jesus, I am boarding a plane that will never fly. A Jesus of my own making is worthless to me. He will not hold me when I am broken. A fake Jesus cannot make what is wrong in my life turn right. A fake Jesus cannot raise the dead, cannot forgive my sins, and cannot fill my heart with joyful hope. Because he's not real. And so my question to you, and it's going to be our question for the next 14 weeks together, will you make this year about rediscovering Jesus? So this story is not yours if you're not a Christian. Are you willing to investigate him, to come along with you, to, to, with Luke, just to, to listen? Like, what, who was he? What was he doing? We're going to spend the next 14 weeks doing that, to get at the real Jesus, the people who knew him, who claimed to know him. Again, you can't make this stuff up 30 years ago, right? You can't, Luke could not just make this stuff up about the life of Jesus. This is who people thought he was, whether he was a liar and a trickster or truly the son of God. This is what people said about him. So go and read it and listen to it. And if the story is yours, are you ready to put down your cut-up Bible, your domesticated Jesus, and let him go to work on you? Are you willing to encounter Jesus as the lion that he is? Because if you do, here's what you'll find. A Jesus that is so committed to you, he bled for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. He was raised to, to new life for you. And he claims to be able to make everything that is wrong about your life right. And he is seeking you now. The only question is, will you be found? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, in a... In a day of science and everything that's verifiable in front of us, we speak to a God we have not seen and to a Jesus we, we've never met in person. And that's strange in this world. And yet you read through the Gospel of Luke and Jesus said his mission is to come and to seek and save what is lost. And so we, just, we open this space up to you to say, come God, seek and save us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.